You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi and welcome to Shrink the Virus. Today, we're recording the show on Saturday the 1st, although you'll be listening to it on Monday the 3rd. It's me, Rob Seltzer, and joining me is my very, very bestie, Steve Allen. That always happens, doesn't it? With this radio voice. <laughs> you're not sure if I'm going to say your name or if you're going to say your name. <laughs> hey, we've got a great episode lined up today. We'll be speaking with Paul Denbra. Now, Paul is an old mate of ours, and he's also the clinical director of the Alfred Child and Youth Mental Health Service and Headspace. That's Kim's and Headspace. And he's had more than 20 years, even longer. 30. 30. Although he looks about 25 when you look at his photo. He's just a very good-looking man. He's had, he's had loads of experience as a uh, child psychiatrist and as director of probably one of the largest combined child and youth service, mental health services in Victoria. Hey, you know, that just reminds me. So it was, must have been about 20 years ago he came to the Alfred. So, 16, yeah, so, seven, yeah. so 18 to 20 years ago. And at the time, I remember uh, we were looking for a new director. Mm. And I was at the Alfred. And the overall, the director of the whole thing was a guy called uh, Peter Doherty back then. Mm. And uh, he said to me, uh, do you know Denver? I said, yeah, yeah, he's, he's a mate from the Austin. I've known him for years. We've been to the pub together. Okay, head over to the Austin, have lunch with him, and talk him into coming to the Alfred. <laughs> and so I rang him up. Hey, uh, Denbrough, I'm going to be nearby. Uh, can we catch up for lunch? <laughs> and then, and now there's an opening at the Alfred. You need to come across. But I, I also heard that when his team at the last place he worked heard that he was leaving, they were crying. Loved. Oh, he's a great guy. He, he was very a, well he's loved, loved as a manager. And he's, he's not only a great psychiatrist, he's a great psychiatrist, great clinician, Excellent administrator and uh, and runs a really good service and has also played key roles in mental health reform in Victoria. True, yeah, and he's a, also bloody good at sport and all yeah. that sort of stuff. He's quite annoying, actually. God, he's got it all. Yeah. Hey, man, um, lots of news this week, especially in the state of Victoria. We'll get to that. But just one thing I want to bring up. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about all the different ways you could stop your glasses from fogging up when you're wearing a mask? Yep. Well, I tried all of them. And I reckon the best way for me has been the 50% shampoo with water, put on your glasses, dry them off. I dry them off um, on the vents in my car with the heating vents. And seriously, it is it is almost a, uh, a miracle. Like you can breathe as hard as you want and the glasses just don't fog up. So I'm set now. Half shampoo, oh, half water. I'll have to give it a try because I gave soapy water a try and it didn't do much for no, me. No, so. it doesn't. No, I think it's yeah. something about the shampoo. I think it's right. About, and you put it in a bottle, a bottle and half shampoo, half water, and spray it on. Yeah, and then I, then I and then I um uh, wash it off just a smidge with some running water, and then I dry it so it doesn't streak. Then I dry it. Yeah, it's fair. it's really you will come back a changed man next week when you dry this. Because right, I'm using the Micropore tape that's about three bucks at the chemist. It's that, you know, tape that... Um, I don't like tape on my face. I just, well, yeah. I've been putting it on every day. Now, the first... But, and I have to take my mask on and off 20, 
25 times a day because I mean, when I'm in my office alone, I don't need to wear it. But every time I step out of my office, I have to put my mask on. And so I'm taking it on and off. Now, the first time I take it off, I swear I'm taking off a layer of skin every time. <laughs> and it's like I'm having, what's that thing that, you know, they have in cosmetic shops, microdermabrasion or something like that. I see so I'm sure I'm going to have a strip underneath my eyes where my skin looks like I'm 20 years old <laughs> and the rest of me looks 57. And it's just hey. going to be weird. I'm going to look like I've had plastic surgery just in one bit. I remember reading in a in a women's magazine like 20 years ago that one of the ways you can get an, a, a sort of a cheap facelift is just to tape back <laughs> your ears where the skin is and it kind of pulls your tape, your, your face tighter. I might try that because, look, I'm just doing it now in the Zoom and I, I'm looking younger. Yeah, except you'll be behind a mask and no one will be able <laughs> to <laughs> bloody see it. <laughs> no one can see it. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Hey, man, what's news with you? Hey, uh, you know, I wanted to follow up last week. You know, I had a uh, – I, I, what did I call it? I said – a misstep. I said Dan Andrews had his first misstep, in oh. my opinion, because he, you know, canned the public for um, not taking isolation seriously enough whilst they were waiting for test results. Yes. And I brought up the point that um, that whilst that is true, the bigger issue is that tests are taking far too long at three to five days, for one. Mm -hmm. And for two, the contact traces are overwhelmed. So they're not getting onto people soon enough to give them great instructions once they are positive, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And we needed to really lift our game. Now, I was mm -hmm. pleased to see, just out reading the newspaper this morning that I've got in front of me, a couple of things are in it that, you know, they're really addressing these both of these problems. Firstly, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said yesterday, I'm reading from the paper, mm -hmm. the Victorian government, along with other states, must provide clear data on, to the National Cabinet about its, their contact tracing systems. Mm. And we've now got people from interstate helping with our contact tracing, the idea being that we can get onto people really super mm. quick and give them all the advice and trace their contacts and ring them up, et cetera, et cetera. And the other thing, let me, I'll just finish, the other thing that they've done too, and I assume this is to address the slow testing time, mm. they've now said no asymptomatic mm. testing except mm. for special reasons. And there's a lot of special reasons you can get it. But, um, you know, for example, obviously, if you've had contact with a positive person. Yeah, sure. But otherwise, sure. so they're cutting back the number of really, really low risk tests, which I assume is so the testing services aren't overwhelmed. overwhelmed so yeah. we can get the, you know, because early on the return time, I've had three COVID tests, the early on the return time was about 24 hours. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, um, in some places, um, it's as quick as four hours. Mm. So whereas I've also heard it as low as five, six, seven days, which is mm. just not good enough. Sorry. So, yeah, great work, Victoria, fixing up those problems. Great work listening to Shrink the Virus. I was going to say, the impetus was Steve <laughs> Allen on Shrink the Virus. <laughs> wouldn't, that be you, amazing if, wouldn't that be amazing if Dan Andrews said, look, I've been listening to Shrink the Virus. Yeah. Those guys, they, yeah. uh, they know a lot. They, they make a good point. <laughs> they just. What about hey, you, man? What's, what's news with you? Um, look, uh, as I said, there's lots of news, and it's really – it's. Um, you know, one of the uh, mission statements of this show was to. Did we have a mission statement? Didn't you? Weren't you at the meeting? <laughs> <laughs> so clearly, you were typing during that Zoom meeting. And one of the ideas was to uh, find a thread of optimism somewhere as much as we can, and True. not to be too down. Um, yep. Having said that, I saw the figures from the World Health Organization that uh, the number of cases per day peaked at something like two hundred and seventy thousand cases per day. Now Steve, I want you to do I want you to do something for me. Could you count to 3? 1 2 3. 10 people in the world were just diagnosed with covid. You Ooh. multiply that by 60 by 60 by 24 and you get 270,000. So it really is uh, it causes you to pause and think and really really I mean the, the things that we're being asked to do in Victoria, I know they're they're a hassle, but they're so minor compared to the risks of not doing them.
you know, you know social distancing, all those sorts of things. I haven't checked the maths on this yet, but I heard one of the you know serious American experts in a government position, you know, Fauci style guy, um, talking about the rates in America now, and and I found this hard to believe, and I really would like to do the mm. maths. But he said they're now up to seven percent of their population has. Um, had COVID, which just sounded to me... That would make sense, yeah, because they've got about yeah, 200 and, uh, 350 million people and they've got a couple of million people with COVID. So that would, yeah, that's... Because oh. we're still sitting on, you know, in Australia, we're still sitting on what... I haven't done the figures again yeah. recently, but it's about 0.01 at the very yeah. most. We're, we're well below 1%. Well, like a tenth of 1%, way below. Yeah. 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 Hey, um, one other thing I was going to talk about, fresh memes of the week. Do you have any memes that you've seen this week that have caught your eye and you thought, yeah, that's interesting. Oh, God, meme. I see so many. I so keep, I. Um, you know, Catherine Devaney, Melbourne writer. Oh, she, co- she puts up so many. Co-author of that amazing book, Mental Everything You Never Knew You Needed to Know About Mental Health, written with that good-looking psychiatrist, Steve Allen. Um, she puts heaps <laughs> on her page, and I look at them the hysterical. every damn day. You tell your favourite while I quickly have a look at her. Well, I was just saying, I mean, my favourite was the, you can now buy the um, Brett Sutton bedspread. It's a it's a bedspread like a quilt cover, with uh, hundreds or dozens of little pictures of uh, of Brett Sutton, because uh, a lot of the women who I uh, associate with find him a pretty attractive character. Yeah, yeah, that is. Uh, you know, I wonder. I mean, we've talked so many times about how stressed it must be being. Oh, him, but um, he looks so cool, doesn't he? He gets yeah. up there. He's clear. He's cool. He's calm. He's you know optimistic. Legend. So you're I'm trying searching- to. I'm searching through, but a whole lot of them have X-rated content. And given that if we do anything X-rated on this podcast, we have to put a special damn warning up on no, Apple. Then I I just say go to Catherine. Go to Catherine's uh, page because all the ones I really love have X-rated con. Yeah, I'll just do one. I'll just say one. In fact, I've already closed it. But it was a picture of I don't know. It was a Batman picture or something. And the caption was. Yes, he was forced to wear a face mask, face mask, and it's true, his dick did fall off. That's pretty funny. <laughs> All right. Uh, maybe, it yes. didn't, maybe it didn't travel. Maybe it's a, it's a more maybe official kind of gag. Yeah, maybe I better stick to, uh, to commentary. <laughs> to writing rather, books. Rather than gagging. Hey, man, we should uh, head on to the show. Uh, so stay listening, because this, i got to say, is a fantastic interview with Paul Denbrough. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. And joining us now is Paul Dembra. Hey, Paul, look, this probably doesn't translate to the shrink the virus, you know, sound. People need the visuals for this question. But I hear many people say you are the best looking psychiatrist in Melbourne. Do you think that's because they haven't seen Rob or me? <laughs> That's the, I wasn't expecting that question, Steve, to be honest. You, get, you run me through a few questions about coronavirus and you ask me that. You're trying to unsettle me. Is that what you're doing? Or? I just want to get your opinion on whether you are the best-looking well, psychiatrist. The best. You were always the best-looking psychiatrist. So. so it was your height. It was your height that made you attractive. No, I don't think it was that. I think it was your personality, actually. I think it was your personality and your swagger. You've got the yeah. most amazing swagger. I can see you coming like a mile off. It's You've got kind of this John Wayne kind of walk. You know what he really reminds cool. me of? Who's it's, the guy who's... flirting with me. What is this? This is some weird interview where you flirt with the guests. I don't know what... Yeah, happened. we start off flirting and then we move into the serious stuff. But you're actually, you've got the walk of the guy from Sons of Anika, Anarchy. I think his name's Zax or something like that. Anyway, um, but we will get on to a serious question. Let's start. Look, why don't we hit you with, you know, let's just throw you straight in the deep end. What uh, impact... You, you're obviously, you know, the director of a big... Um, child psychiatry service in melbourne what impact the largest 
the largest, one of the largest, depending on how you measure it. Um, what has uh, what sort of impact has COVID had on the way you practice your work and mental health presentations? Oh, well, it's had a massive impact. I mean, first of all, it came you know it came in pretty quickly, and um, a lot of staff were and clients were very anxious, and we had to rapidly change the way we do things, mainly around the social distancing and also people worried they're going to catch the virus by coming to work. So uh, we quickly had to move to telehealth in our Headspace primary. Uh, also, we had to do that because otherwise the clinicians weren't getting paid because the clients weren't coming into the building. So but what was it was remarkable, actually, how quickly that happened. I think those clinicians moved to telehealth within a week. And in fact, we ended up having the highest number of telehealth consultations in the Alfred. And it was mainly through the primary headspace, but then the salaried staff as well started to use more telehealth because partly because we had to move to a two-team system. So if somebody came into work bringing the virus, the whole service didn't shut down. So there was a whole lot of structural things we had to do. So it's been quite stressful actually and trying to manage the uh, way the service operates with all that has been difficult. Paul, when you say a two-team service, does that mean like team A comes in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, team B comes in Thursday, Friday? Yeah, exactly. So, well, with our Headspace team, they were doing alternate days, and we so. But in the child, the state-funded Kims, they were coming in week at home one week and working from home, I should say, not. And so that's doing telehealth from home and then um, coming to work. So alternating. So only half the team saw each other. Yeah, we did the same at um, Peter Mac with our social work team, except we swapped them over on a Wednesday. I'm not actually sure why. I think because Wednesday was like lots of meetings where, you know, they would all hand things over and stuff. And so half and half. We didn't do it with some of our other teams. But of course, um, you know, we've been, well, we've been lucky. We haven't had much COVID in our service. Have you had any actual COVID amongst your um, team? No, we've had none. But um, except saying that we've got staff out at Dandenong Headspace. So our Alfred staff are out there. And just last week, a, they're employed by each, so an NGO, one of their staff got tested positive. So even though it appears very likely none of our staff were anywhere near that person, it still means the building shut for a clean. And um, we're not actually 100% sure when our staff will be able to go back into the building. Uh, but the Alfred's actually amazingly resourced. So all of our staff will be contact traced um, over the weekend, whereas for some of these NGOs, they're having to rely on the government and it could be quite a lengthy process to be back safe at work, if that makes mm. sense. Just on that quick point, sorry, Rob, because I know you've got okay. a follow-up question. You know, I checked some of the testing times recently and Alfred's turnaround time for staff on testing is four to five hours. That is just fantastic. That's amazing, but also mm. the fact that they've got people who contact trace. So not even yep. just the testing is fast, but they've got the resource to contact everybody and work out where they were, when, and all that sort of business. So that's that's probably the most time-consuming thing is the contact tracing. Absolutely. Well, the Alfred had contact tracers. Well, because of their HIV mental health service, they're probably one of the biggest and most respected infectious disease units in, in the country. They did amazing work on HIV and still house the statewide HIV service for Melbourne. So, yeah, they, they, uh, they had a great kickstart. Paul, if we turn our minds to your patients, what impact has the pandemic had on kids who come in or who dial up or who um, telehealth through to your service. Have you noticed a change in the way that people are presenting? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, I guess 
and also I'm part of a teleconference link with other countries as well. And one thing I'll start with is to say there seems to be a massive increase in the presentation of eating disorders. So and that's not just in Melbourne, that's in other places as well. So exactly why that is, I don't know. But what we first had was actually a reduction in referrals because I think for a number of reasons, people either didn't want to use telehealth or they didn't want to leave the house or another big issue, of course, was that kids weren't going to school. So some of the problems were sort of hidden in a way that they weren't being picked up. But as soon as the restrictions um, reduced, you know, whether that was uh, four or five weeks ago, there was a massive spike of referrals. Mm -hmm. So that was quite difficult to handle and sort of gone a bit quiet. But what we do get now is the pres people that are coming, partly because of us, because we're prioritising the high-risk people that come into the service, there's very severe problems. I mean, it's mm. it's, it's incredibly stressful out there for everybody, mm. but mm. vulnerable families and vulnerable people, I think it's even, it's worse. So, I think there's a two-factor reason why the referrals are more severe, and because we're seeing the same in cancer. Um, one, um, because... Um, so what am I trying to say here? One is because, yes, there, there was a bit of a delay, and so there's a lot more people referring because of that first couple of months when they didn't refer. But two, of course, the anxiety around COVID, no matter what mental health your condition is, increases the severity of your symptoms. So even if, if you're depressed or even if you've got eating, whatever, the anxiety feeds into whatever syndrome you've got and makes it worse. So we're seeing the same. The acuity, the, as in you know, the severity of the, people, the symptoms that we're seeing are worse at the moment. Yeah, so we're still seeing people face-to-face. -face. I mean, we're trying to minimise that, but main reason for that is that I guess we've got a family model. So when we first meet, if someone gets referred, we like to meet their whole family for the first visit, and it's actually incredibly difficult to do that on telehealth, in my mm. experience. You can do telehealth or, or, in other words, video health when you know people okay, but to start off to try and engage families in supporting their young person on telehealth, I've found very, very difficult. I mean, we do do it, but it's second best, in my opinion. I just, I just want to pick you up too on the eating disorders. Do you have a theory why, what that's about? Well, I mean, I don't, but I, I mean, I can guess, but it's not nothing proven, but I guess eating disorders are around a way to control anxiety and um, using food to uh, manage fears or control performance or perfectionism or anxiety. And guess, as you said before, definitely the anxiety levels in the in the community and everybody is up so whether that's being that whether that's because of that just a general increase in anxiety and people vulnerable like especially teenage girls who are vulnerable mm. to any disorders anyway that may be why but you, is it perhaps because everyone's at home more too and so parents can see the eating behaviors it's much harder to hide them when you're in lockdown possibly although what that's one advantage actually i know that's a weird thing to say but the treatment usually for teenagers with anorexia is to help the family feed them um, or, you know, manage it. And so because people are at home more, that's a little bit easier. So in some ways, for some people, there's more presentations, but in some ways, treatment is a little bit easier because they can really devote the time that's needed to help the kid eat. Yeah. Paul, you said you're seeing or trying to see families face to face. What impact has wearing masks on that? Um, when uh... I think it's it's, well, it's it's I guess when people are in crisis they'll do anything and so will mm. the staff so you get through but it's definitely difficult uh, to do it I mean I, I don't think we're used to it it's a new thing I mean I, I suppose I can only speak for myself personally it's you, you do sort of get used to it but it, it's just um, 
it is difficult to read the facial expressions sometimes mm. and everyone's a little bit on edge anyway. I don't know mm. if it's, it's, it's a weird experience. It feels like you're sort of an alien or, you know, you're coming into an operating theatre where normally you drop, <laughs> yeah. you know, create a relaxed atmosphere, more like a home. So it, it is challenging. But I guess when the problems are very acute, uh, you sort of forget about it a bit, you know what I mean? Because you, you're really focused on the crisis in the moment. So um, it's it's okay. It's uh, Look, I would say we bring people in the clinic only when it's really serious. And so therefore, um, it's okay. You know what I've noticed too with masks? I mean, in the general public, I've felt that when I'm walking through supermarkets and stuff and everyone's got masks on now, there's a lot less eye contact. And my sense is that there's a sense, there's a feeling when you've got a mask on that you're anonymous. And uh, so I noticed a couple of things. One, people aren't interacting as much with their eye contact. But two, I find, and I found this clinically, people are now lazy with their emotional expression. So when I'm seeing a patient, I would normally, you know, do all sorts of reassuring body language, including facial expressions, to reassure the patient. And when I'm behind a mask, and I also have to wear goggles at Peter Max, so over my glasses, I've got surgical goggles and um, my mask. And, you know, you sort of feel like Ned Kelly hidden in behind there. And I found that there's, it's very easy to just become sort of emotionally lazy and so i'm having to try and exaggerate my emotions now to to reverse that emotional laziness you know i'm just speaking and not reacting see i haven't I found, I, haven't I, really found... I really agree with that though it's mm. it's well said because i hadn't even really thought of it that way but i certainly that resonates with me i, I feel like you're not it's definitely the eye contact is, is less so there's no it probably shouldn't be but it, it seems to be that way and i think i'll that's a good tip actually i'll have to uh Work on that. So I was just about to say, I, I, I haven't found that. I found with eye contact, I mean, supermarket out and this, you know, just going out, I find I'm still using as much eye contact. The problem is, though, that people who I know, like just this morning, I was out for a walk along the beach and three people come up to me and said, G'day, Rob, how are you going? And I had no idea who they were because, you know, half their face is covered up. I think that becomes a problem. But I mean, more particularly with, with little kids, I was thinking, Paul, is so much is reliant on facial expressions and, and not words so much, especially with playing with them. So I, I, I would have, I could foresee that that would make it really difficult engaging with, with you know, sort of preschoolers and, and primary school kids. Look, it's a good example. So one of the things that was put on hold shortly was like our autism assessment and um I have to admit uh, our psychiatrist on that team has done an incredible job to do something from America where they are being able to do the autism assessment through telehealth. Mm. So um, I, I personally don't do that sort of work, but they've managed to learn how to do that. And I think that's that's fantastic because there is a long, quite a long wait for autism assessments anyway in Victoria. And it, it was going to be terrible if that was just going to blow out even longer without being able to do things face to face. So but yes, I think that's where you have to use telehealth. So that's an advantage. So rather than having coming in with a mask, um, that, with little kids or doing autism assessments, it's easier actually, even though not as easy as seeing, it's easier to do that on telehealth. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So, you know, when we say telehealth, of course, we're sometimes referring, what I think of as telehealth is speaking to the person and seeing them on my computer as distinct from telephone. Yeah. Um, tele and I'm liking telehealth. I've found it's really good for cancer in particular, seeing the patient in their home environment and often their family will sit on the couch with them. And so there's more people on telephone. On the other hand, some things I like about telephone because there's an anonymity and especially because, you know, we see lots of people in cancer, a trauma history is important, you know, because often the trauma gets
gets um, relived in various ways through the trauma of the cancer treatment. Um, and often face-to-face, it um, takes quite a while to establish enough rapport to find out about past trauma, whereas I'm actually finding out that's a little bit easier on the phone funnily enough. But the big disadvantage I find on the telephone is that the appointments seem to be shorter. And I, and I think the reason being that when someone comes to my clinic, they're set, they're booked in for either an hour, which goes for 50 minutes and 10 minutes writing notes, or they're booked in for a half an hour, which is 25 minutes. And so there's often, if they come in and they've just got one or two things to say, you know, they'll say them and then there's space in the clinic because you've got it 25 minutes. And so there's space for them to relax and then more stuff comes out. Whereas what I find on the telephone is when you get to that space, there's a sense of, oh, let's wind it up because we're finished talking like a normal conversation. So I reckon the big risk of telephone is that you end up short the conversations that should be longer, where you should allow the silence and all that stuff that you normally have in the clinic. I've, and, I, and on telehealth, I, I find that's okay because the palaver around getting telehealth up, you know, people still expect to stay for their whole appointment. Whereas the telephone, it's like, oh, done my business, told you how I'm going, off I go. And you might, and you, sometimes I find the appointments are over in seven minutes or six minutes. And it's like, wow, that was really just, are your medications okay? You got any side effects? Thanks for the time. Bye-bye. You know, so telephone, I think is a real risk. Are you doing any telephone or is yours all telehealth? My, I'll, me personally, I've only been doing um, video health or video, video telehealth, but that's mainly because I mainly just work with family. So it's obviously difficult on the phone. It's just, that's probably more suitable for one person. But yep. um, I'm not sure, actually. I think some. I think mainly we've been using the video health. There might be some, some brief telephone. I think um, the other thing that we've been doing a lot more of is we're doing all, our, all of our groups online, uh, certainly in our Headspace uh, Centre. And the report I've had back from them is that, in fact, some young people prefer it. They prefer the um, groups online than actually face-to-face and there's been a better attendance. So even though I said before that I think mostly the telehealth is second best, I think with some aspects like groups, some of the young people have been reporting that's better. I was talking about this with some of the psychiatry trainees the other day about young people's engagement with screens, you know, because to people of our vintage, we kind of like somebody in the room when we're having a very difficult discussion or an emotional discussion or that there's a sense of privacy um, and there's a sense of, of empathy when there's somebody else in the room, which can be hard to establish over a screen sometimes. Whereas a lot of the younger uh, registrars were saying, well, no, actually, you know, young people nowadays from when they are babies are interacting with a screen. And the idea of somebody behind a screen or somebody in the room is almost the same thing. And perhaps it might even be easier in the comfort of their own house where people feel safer uh, to interact in a group. So for what you were just saying there about groups, it kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. Hey, can I um, ask you too about your team? You mentioned them briefly earlier. How are the staff coping? Are you like down a lot? Uh, you know, they are they uh, adapting as well as the patients? Yeah, look, we had our full staff meeting on Wednesday. Honestly, I don't, I don't know if any of my staff are listening, but I mean... No was, one listens. Don't worry, you're safe. That's okay. But, no, but honestly, they were inspirational. I'm going to say this. And uh, we really mainly heard from the leaders, but... Given the level, I I know whether this is true, but it feels like our service has tried as as hard as possible to provide a business-as-usual service Mm. to clients. And what I know is that other parts of the community, um, their mental health services have shut down um, and and it's it's been purely um, telephone or video health where I think 
what we're doing, which I'm incredibly proud of, is um, still trying to operate a tertiary level clinical service. And that's due, I think, we've got some fantastic leaders, but I think all of the staff are pulling together. And the key is about looking after each other because also one of the biggest stresses, as I think we might talk about maybe, but some of the staff are struggling with also homeschooling, primary school age mm. kids at the yeah. same time as come to work. And that's very stressful. Uh, working from home can be very stressful because we've had to have, even if we've gone away from the team A, team B, and we've moved more to like everyone doing one or maybe two days a week at home. And we have to do that because of social distancing because we don't have enough offices to have everyone in one office. So, um, and, and this, working from home, or my personal thing is I do find that quite stressful and I'm less um, efficient at home. And also that whole idea of switching off from work to home mm. is difficult. Plus, when you've got high-risk clients and you're just dealing with them on your, by yourself at home, it's very stressful, I think, anyway. So I have to say, honestly, our staff have been incredible. That, I mean, so I hope they are listening, but it's actually I'm being sincere. It's true. Paul, yeah. make, them, make them listen. <laughs> they've got to subscribe to shrink the virus they must at the next team meeting hey um just on that do you see the pandemic altering the way that we practice mental health or the way that your yeah services- so look we, we did a big survey of all the staff and you know none of our staff previously have ever worked from home and look there are you know one day a week or one day a fortnight you know uh, it does seem to improve people's work-life uh, balance so that might be something we stay forward i think the things you said before there are some pockets of work that are better with telehealth video health like some groups and certainly meetings i don't don't know the meetings have been way better um with uh coronavirus i know it sounds weird but because we're doing it there's less for me i just have to travel quite a lot to go to certain meetings and now it's all done on teams or zoom or whatever and we're much more focused on issues rather than lots of convoluted conversations the meetings have become way more effective and efficient so i'd like to see that continue but i still think honestly um there'll be there'll be slight some advantages but i think we'll try if possible to get back to seeing people face to face you know it's interesting with meetings i've really noticed that too and i think there's a number of factors one there's a lot of meetings you go to where you're really not a key player and it's a little bit you're a little bit peripheral and those meetings over telehealth are way more efficient because you can have the sound on, you can be listening and you can answer other emails and do stuff because there's a lot of meetings like that. The other thing I find too is when you're doing a face-to-face meeting, there's always about a quarter of people who haven't actually got anything different to say. They just want to have their voice heard, you know, and that they're what I think of in my head as the me too people. You know, someone makes a good point and they say, I'd like to echo that. And then they repeat the whole bloody point. It drives me nuts. The me too is. And every face-to-face meeting has a percentage of me tours whereas online the me tours don't do it they don't turn off their mute and make a big point you know so there's way less me tourism in uh, online meetings and i find them much more efficient not to mention of course the travel time even in the hospital it takes five minutes and to get to a meeting and nearly everyone's five minutes late now everyone gets there exactly on time it starts on time and so many finish 15 minutes early and the other thing too is when you're going to a Zoom meeting, you can be working on something else and staring at the screen and people think that you're actually engaged in the in the actual meeting. You don't have to be 100% engaged until you hear something interesting that you can come up. So you're doubly efficient. You can parallel work. You've got to get good at it though because, yeah. you know, the first month I got caught out a few times where, you know, I thought I didn't need to concentrate and I did, but I reckon I got better at it now because I don't do 
um, thought rich tasks during the meeting. I just do all the minor things, fix my diary, answer basic emails. Sorry, Rob. So, well, no, I'm working. I'm working. To make sure you knew. Did you notice that I was been doing some emails while I've been having this conversation? <laughs> Oh, are you still here? Are you still here, Paul? Oh, we thought you'd gone. <laughs> While you two talk to each other, I'll just do my emails. It's good. Hey, I do want to move you on to another thing. One of the things that I heard said a lot, and in particular, I heard Michael Mosley said it when I interviewed him. I'm just dropping names now. On uh, radiotherapy last week, I interviewed Michael Sorry, Mosley. Steve, who did you interview? Sorry, I didn't quite get that. Forget some famous doctor from famous England. Doctor from Michael England. something or other. Um, anyway, one of the things he said, and I didn't pick him up on it, so I'm, I'm so unfortunately, it's a week later now, um, but he said the risks of homeschooling are probably greater than the risks of kids going to school. And he did sort of clarify it a little bit. He was saying that, you know, the risks for kids with COVID are relatively low compared to, you know, he, he said, in fact, COVID in children is probably a less severe illness than the flu. And so he was saying some of the risks of homeschooling are probably greater than the risks of sending kids to school. So he was pro sending them to school. And, um, you know, I don't want you to justify his argument, but I did want to ask you, do you think there are risks of homeschooling? Are there problems for um, for the children in homeschooling? Yeah, well, it was a reasonably frightening statistic that came out um, early on. I think, I don't know if it was Dan Andrews or someone said that, or someone said that there was 25% of kids in Victoria homeschooling were learning nothing, either because there wasn't the appropriate internet or that their home home environment was so chaotic, or they didn't have the right IT equipment, or whatever, or computers, or whatever. So, if you're thinking of a quarter of children, they're actually learning nothing or not having any school experience. Maybe that's improved as time gone on. That's pretty dire, I would yeah, say. Yeah. And I guess it depends on the age. Um, I think. Um, my year 11 son, he, he's going to school at the moment, but he was doing homeschooling and he seemed less affected because he was quite motivated and he could cope. He's going to a, he had the right IT equipment and whatever. So his homeschooling wasn't too bad, but it just depends. I mean, I think the vulnerable um, kids or the kids who are uh, more socially awkward or lonely or isolated, mm-hmm. you know, I think homeschooling is very risky because they um, they look, get even further behind the peer group. Especially mm. for parents who um, have a job. I say that my girlfriend runs a business and, and she has three kids at home doing their schooling. And so she sets them up for the homeschooling. But then if things are busy at business and then, she, you know, she checks in on the kids. It's only five minutes from a business. She checks in on the kids and one of them's, you know, playing computer games or, you know, they're not doing their work. She just doesn't have the mental space. Are they primary school age or? They're... 8, 10, and 13. I say, I reckon primary school age homeschooling mm. must be incredibly difficult. Mm. I don't know. Unless she was sitting there with them, I can't imagine they would do anything. Mm. They're not getting Look, mm. I'd say about 50% is efficient at the most from um, what I'm seeing. And we spoke to a teacher at one of Melbourne's sort of larger schools, and he echoed exactly that, that it's very difficult to sit little kids in front of a computer and for them to do homework. Um Stephen, I noticed that we've got uh, a question about the Royal Commission. Is yeah, that, did we want to ask that, or would yeah? Wanna... Look, the reason I wanted uh, the reason I wanted to ask that is because, yeah. um, Paul, you've been obviously involved in mental health reform over many years. You were one of the first people that set up a headspace. You've been involved in all sorts of new programs, and and I know you're a regular contributor to pretty much everything that the health department does when it's planning mental health. And so, 
I've been hearing a few stories, and I don't know if you can comment on this, that there's a lot of fear around that the amount of money being spent on COVID in the health system, which is massive, obviously, is going to mean that the Royal Commission into Mental Health that's going on now, when it finishes, there really won't be the appetite or the money to do all the reforms that um, the Royal Commission will recommend. And I wondered whether you had any thoughts on that or concerns about what the COVID, what impact COVID will have on the Royal Commission into Mental Health. Yeah, well, I mean, like the first thing I can say is um, the people in the Royal Commission are working incredibly hard at the moment. So they're full steam ahead. There's many roundtables, many consultations. It's, they're working as hard as ever and probably more efficiently with the online meetings, you know, so what we are talking about before. So all I can say is that their work has not diminished at all, If you know, it's intensified, if anything. So, and they're really looking at making some pretty, um, I think, you know, it's potentially radical changes to the mental health system. So that bit I wouldn't be too worried about. Um, but whether how much money they have um is you know who knows i can't comment on that but i mean obviously the sounds like the economy is going to be in strife for about five or ten years apparently so there'll be less money but it does feel like the there's an appetite for the community to actually look after people and improve mental health so i don't know to answer your question but you'd have to assume there's less money around but they are following through with the promises that they made in the first Round. So I don't know if you know, there's an interim report and there yeah. were um, a number of promises which they are following through. So it's, I, I mean, I, I would still say that the government is incredibly committed to reform the mental health system. That's optimistic. It's fantastic. Paul, we ask everybody this question and you look pretty relaxed. So I won't tell you to take a deep breath and find your happy place. Rob, did you dropped like out this. for me what then. Did, you... did Rob drop out for you, Paul? He dropped out for me as well, yeah. Rob, you're dropping out. Did I? Try again. Did I drop out? Am, yeah. I, ba am I back now? Back, okay, back now. Good. Paul, what a good. I was going to say, Paul, this is a question we ask everybody. What are you doing differently and better now than pre-COVID times? Hey, you know what, Rob? You're dropping out really badly, so I'm going to ask the question for you. And just so that everyone gets the full Rob effect, I'm going to mimic you whilst asking this question. This is how he asks it every week, Paul, and every time I sort of, I slightly, I slightly shudder. He says, now take a, take a deep breath, sit back in your chair, because I ask this question every week. What are you doing now during the pandemic that is better than before the pandemic that you will carry on to the future? Now I'll go back to me. Did you get the question? Yeah, but are you meaning my personal life or are you meaning my work life? Either. Well, personal life, I mean, it, it has been, um, even though I'm over it now, briefly, um, it was a really great way to spend more time with the kids and connect, I think, because my kids are a little bit older. Well, not older, but they're, you know, they're 13 and above. And I guess because we're home more together, that was actually really quite nice because normally before that we'd all be out different areas, not really. So I would like to continue that, whether that's that might be my fantasy, probably not their fantasy, but... Um, uh, that would be good. Uh, I certainly did a lot more reading and um, more self-reflecting and stuff because you're out less. But, you know, I can imagine when the, if the pandemic ever is over, I'll be out every night presumably because I'm missing that as well. But so I guess trying to make sure that I keep that balance uh, going personally. Um, in terms of work, there's, I really, I'd love to think, everyone likes to look, think of the positive. I don't think there's been hardly any positives of it, to be honest. Um, look, maybe the whole idea of doing telehealth uh, for meetings and for 
clients that you know really well it's convenient and maybe time efficient yes maybe some of these groups for teenagers might be better online but essentially i'm going to be honest and say i don't think uh there's many things that are better with the with i think coronavirus has improved my life or our workplace paul have you been baking any sourdough (laughs) (laughs) no luckily this time around though the golf course is still open so i'm playing a bit of golf Okay. Oh, that's good. Hey, uh, um, Paul, it's been fantastic having you on the show and hearing the uh, perspective from the director of a you know big and very successful child psychiatry service in Melbourne. Um, your last point does resonate with me too. I keep trying to find the positives, but at the end of the day, you know, this lockdown and this coronavirus is a shitful experience, although I don't want to end it on a down, so I'm trying to think of some way of lifting it. But it is a pleasure to see your very handsome face once again, because I hadn't seen you for, I don't think, it must be about a year since we've caught up at least. So it's great to see you and very much appreciate you joining us on Shrink the Virus. Thanks, Paul. And Thank you for listening to Shrink the Virus. Hope you enjoyed the show. Of course, that was Dr. Paul Dembra, the clinical director of the uh, KIMS, the Child and Youth Mental Health Service and Headspace at Alfred Health in Victoria. I'm pretty sure you'll all agree. What a great guy. And trust me, he is good looking. Don't forget to tell your friends and subscribe. We've got a Facebook page called Shrink the Virus. We have an email, shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and everything else. And I've got a website, steveallen.com. Roberto, anything you want to add? Now, don't forget to tune into our radio show, which is called Radio Therapy. That's on 3RRR on Sundays at 10 a.m. Can I just ask... I think I heard that famous Dr. Michael Mosley from England being interviewed last yeah. week. I can't remember who interviewed him, but he sounded intelligent. Whoever interviewed him sounded it didn't sound good looking, but he sounded intelligent. Well, I do know that was you, and that's available for podcasting and streaming um, f- uh, from the Triple R website. And great interview, by the way, mate. Now, if you Thank were listening you. yesterday to Radiotherapy, you would have heard me. Uh, with a uh, another fantastic show too. You're trying to time travel because you haven't <laughs> done tomorrow's. That's tomorrow's show, but it'll be, to- it'll be yesterday. It'll be yesterday for people listening. Yeah. So. Time tra- How do you know it was a great show? How do you know that you didn't have technical problems and it dropped it's- out? I definitely will have technical problems, but it will, in spite of that, be a great show. Thank will, you. I'm sure. Thank you to everyone that's helped us put this show together, and that is all the wonderful people from Two Triple It's Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth. And Michael, thanks guys. And we will see you next week. Adios. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform.